Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Welcome to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series features the stories of creative and innovative educators who are influencing, motivating, and inspiring Hawaii, the nation, and the world. Now, let's send it off to your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Today we are with Justin Brown, STEM and makerspace educator at Kealakehe High School. Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So Justin, we do this format where we do 10 questions for, so today's gonna be 10 questions for Justin. So we're gonna jump right into question number one. So John Hattie starts his 2014 book, Mm. Visible Learning and the Science of How We Learn, by quoting education writer Daniel Willingham, who asks, and I quote, why don't students like school? So given many students do like school, I'm going to rephrase Willingham's question and ask Justin Brown, why don't more students like school? So I think kind of foundational to that uh, is gonna be separating uh, an implied connection between school and learning And I think what we can say is all students like learning. Uh, We have everything societally set up to show that that incentive set exists, right? We get a dopaminergic surge when we're we're building those new neural pathways. And I think students who are not expressing that love of school might not be learning in ways or in content that they find meaningful and valuable. And so if we were to recouple that and and start to ask what are the places spaces and experience where children and adults and kapuna and entire communities can get together to to learn and work on meaningful problems i think like we we could adjust that and and zero out that remainder in terms of of kids who are not liking school you know school is this large industrial complex that has a set of incentives that don't always match with engaging kids. And I know a lot of times teachers would like to feel like, hey, we're these, we gotta be up on the stage and we gotta be more interesting than you know whatever we're calling the distraction space of the day. Um, but if we look at learning, that's happening in a lot of other places. And how are we linking some of our formal and collective time in that space called school? to all of the other moments of their life, which might be like a little bit more meaningful. And I think uh, if we were to do that more intentionally, then we're going to, if we choose to care about that metric, do better on it. Do you, Justin, get a dopamine rush when you have the strong sense that your kids are digging school? Um, Probably. I think, you know, just the way we're kind of built to think through the, the meaning of our work and our interactions, particularly in a social setting like education, there's a lot of conditioning that um, would structurally incentivize that experience. So I think, yes, that, that's, that's definitely happening. Uh, it's the shining eye, that moment where I think we know subconsciously that we've connected and are resonating on a big idea that matters and you see that that real life experience that both in terms of education and interpersonal relationships and society i like to really measure the success of of my day and how many shining eyes i get to experience with others mm-hmm. and since i'm at school about 16 hours a day most of those shining eyes happen mm-hmm. at the school right 
I want to dig a little bit further into this. Um, Willingham offers that the brain is not designed to think. So for reasons of confidence, effort, avoidance of failure, and difficulties accessing information, we try not to think too much. We are motivated by knowledge gaps, but not knowledge chasms. Mm -hmm. So we, we are programmed to copy, but not to think for ourselves. And so what we, tr well, I'm just gonna have you react to that idea. Hmm. You know, I'd, I'd push back on the neuroscience behind, I think, the social idea he's trying to talk about. Um, we are very programmed to seek out patterns. And that's a part of our survival uh, network that we reappropriate in kind of the intellectual and academic context of today. Um, and I think in seeking out patterns, there is maybe a gap, and I don't know if this is what he was saying, in terms of reflection and how, how that comes out. And are we programmed to do that? Uh, I struggle with that because there are some very specific regions. You know, we look at the broker region of the brain and how language develops and how that kind of sits right there and will connect to the limbic system. And, and as we start to get into that, I, I guess, I, I don't know, it's, it's probably disconnected from where you're going with the, with the question. But I, I, think, I think we are programmed to try and find our place in problems. Mm. And, and in doing that, uh, I think we have a language around this idea of thinking that uh, appropriately describes the mechanism of action that's happening there. And we are definitely programmed to retain information. And retaining information has kind of this weird naughty term in education right now, like everything is supposed to be. But retaining information is exceptionally important. It is, it's the foundation of knowledge. And we can and should be doing that with all of our senses. But inside of our brain is everything we've ever seen, heard, and said and experienced. Mm. We just then train our brain to prioritize how quickly we can access it. But every single thing you've ever said and seen is still in there. So our brain is tremendously developed to um, store knowledge. Mm. The, the question becomes, how are we processing it, building patterns and making decisions with it so that we can meet the challenges of the day? And what would be the natural consequences of that from, a, again, a neuroscience perspective doesn't match up with the challenges of the day right now. I mean, if we look at our stress system and how it deals with survival context, like we live in a post-survival context society, and we're reappropriating a lot of systems that were designed to help us escape from lions and applying them to these weird social situations. Uh, and it's, it's a stretch. We have to do some in, internal neuroplasticity um, to make that happen, but uh, our brains are, are magnificent and they do it really naturally. So I would say that our brains are programmed to think. I, if he's resonating on the idea that maybe our brains aren't programmed to reflect in the way that so many people find meaning and purpose in taking our experiences and the knowledge we have, then reflecting and building a sense of identity, I think I could agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea of our brains aren't programmed to think, I'd, I'd, I just wanna see a lot more research on that. Cool. Okay, cool. Question number two. So at last year's Schools of the Future conference, you and I talked about school transformation. At one point, you talked about, quote unquote, building the plane as we fly it. Mm -hmm. A reference to your philosophy of education, I think, um, the way that you work with your students and what you do with your students together. But one head of school I interviewed for this podcast recently thinks building a plane while you fly it is a really bad idea because the plane will likely crash. He prefers to do what he calls school renovations. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to talk about what are your thoughts on building planes and school transformation? Are these just semantics or are there is there substance to this discussion about intentional school design? Yeah, certainly. So I think, you know, there's a, a moral urgency to now that reflects every single day and every kid that we have now in the absence of the system that we're hoping to get to soon. And so I think to, to kind of build out the metaphor and definitely reference uh, principal in North Carolina, um, Mr. Cannon, who kind of revealed this kind of idea to me that's really organized the way I think about it is, I, I'm fortunate and a lot of people in the educational leadership space are fortunate that we've seen different models for learning, school, community engagement, innovation, all this type of disruptive stuff, we, you know, in a tech space, an art space, and a meaningful place-based learning space. And we've gotten to go off and do that and we're on a ship. And I think in the technological paradigm of the learning needs of our students, like the ship's not the thing they need to be on. 
Like if we don't own our education system, many times is failing many students. And the outcome of that, if we explicate it into the next generation, is is gonna be rather serious for society potentially. Then we have to say, what is the paradigm? And And when you have these paradigm shifting technologies, the paradigm of the past can still exist in some type of a, a craft or niche way, but isn't what's driving it. So I believe the system, the schools, most of our schools are ships. And some of us have gotten to jump on helicopters and see that like, hey, there are these plane things. And planes are going to do a better job. And there's maybe a role, but like this ship is going to crash. And we have, if we take the, the paradigm back a little farther, a system in the DOE that's oftentimes set up that the predominant transportation, if the metaphor continues, is like animal husbandry, right? So our systems are two paradigms back, and we're currently on ships that are measuring the wrong things. And then some of us can see planes, and then it's like, well, wait, then we have these rocket ships and some other ways that we're going to do things. How do we manage those paradigm shifts? Mm-hmm. And for me, like, we're on the ship. On the ship, we're building the plane, right? So we're building the plane on the ship. If we just focus on keeping the ship going, we're never going to get the plane built, and we're going to go down with our ship, right? And if all we do is build the plane, then our our, our, our ship needs some maintenance. So I think it, it comes down to, to agile task management in terms of leadership. There are people who are really invested in the operation of the ship. And as long as we're on the ship, let's have the best dang ship we can have, right? And this ship is this kind of siloed, um, this this learning model that looks like what many people had from the, the 70s to the 2000s in terms of learning. Let's do that as well as we can do that yeah. and make sure we're investing resources into building a plane and make sure we're investing resources into that next paradigm. Um, but I, I think there's a, again, there's there's there needs to be some moral urgency to what's happening that requires us to say, like, we got to get uncomfortable with with movement because our outcomes aren't matching the scale of the problem that's needed. And that that can deal with the economics of work and what our kids are going to end up having there. Or it can also deal with, like, the disconnected individual societal larger existential crisis of this generation that our kids are experiencing every day as they're becoming more disconnected from their uh, authentic communities and identity, right? Like those are those are two of many really good questions that maybe school has a role in answering for communities and isn't doing well. Mm-hmm. And I just I just don't know why we're so afraid to just like say like we're like we're not doing great at a lot of things we need to do great at. And we can talk about what what needs to happen for that. But at this point, I just don't have a lot of patience for people being like, let's just stay on the ship, right? Like that's comfortable for the adults who've lived their lives on the ship. That's not a sufficient answer for where the kids are. No, that doesn't mean that there aren't great lessons about how you navigate courses and you have shifts. And maybe there's a lot of interesting things that we can and should learn from the ship as we move to the plane, but it's time to go. Mm. Right. And and we have to look at objectively what what systemically is keeping incentives in place for people to want to stay on ships that are going to crash and are going to crash with kids. That's a hard and big question that I don't always feel comfortable when I think about it for too long. But I think other systems have dive have 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 gone through these processes like something will happen. Right. right, and it might happen that a lot of kids or a lot of parents choose to not send their kids to school. Right, right, because because sometimes there are places that exacerbate trauma. Sometimes there are places that there are definitely things we can do to young minds that limit later potential. And a lot of those things are practices that might happen at above average levels in schools. Right. So what you know, the, I mean, those are big questions. But I would definitely say, like, yeah, yeah. we got to get people on a plane. Let's. Sure, not, let's not cross the ship, but let's go. And I think there's a, there's a lack of urgency in some of these conversations that um, is disturbing. Okay, so speaking of uncomfortable, um, question number three. So recently I attended the 2020 East Meets West conference uh, put on by um, Blue Planet, um, which gathers entrepreneurs and startups and venture folks from all over the Pacific Rim. One of the panels was titled Artificial Intelligence, All Hype or Too Real? My question has to do with data and whether or not we need national or global data policies. 
If yes, who will set this policy in Hawaii, in the US, and around the world? And my, my concern is my question, Justin. Mm -hmm. While kids are thrashing around in algebra, which is a pet peeve of mine, um, and major global issues like data policy are being made by others or not at all. And while kids are spending hours in traditional memorization language courses, for example, AI is close to solving the problem of real-time translation. So what happens if kids graduate from high school and find out that a business in Asia has developed an app that translates facial recognition into reports to government agencies like police departments? I'm super worried that most kids will not have a clue how to approach such complex problems. Talk to me. So I think sometimes a problem in a technological space can appear more complicated than it is. And that as we teach um, problem solving as a systematic way for um, inquiring about the nature of reality, that they can be prepared for all types of things. So, you know, we add on, oh, it's going to be AI and it's going to have a big data and what are we going to do with this algorithm? And it's like, well, those have some technical species, which what happens is it takes up a little bit of our cognitive bandwidth and then we feel like the problem's bigger. Like it, we can look... I mean, we can go back to the Greeks in terms of that question. So we can say, what is the role of the individual against the society? What, what, do, we, what do we need to talk about in terms of, of freedom and rights and how we balance out those priorities? And, and that's something that having a context in history and, and not memorizing facts, but having real discussions with people will prepare you for. Um, I... I I think I used to be a bit of a apologist for the big bad boogeyman of these future tech things and it motivating the way that I thought things should change. And having interacted with and, and gotten to build and work on some of these technologies, I, I think ultimately we're, we're answering the same types of problems all the time. It has a, a different uh, veneer on it, but it, I guess we have really, I, I have a lot of kids that I think could answer that question right now in high school. A lot of my students, so in, so in our program, um, you know, we use a STEM C squared model where the foundation of everything is citizenship and civic virtue as, as discussed by, by Aristotle and what that is the foundation. And then STEM becomes the pathways, kind of the tree, and at the end of it, it's creativity. Mm -hmm. and, and we try and balance those things. How do you get from citizenship to creativity using the, the tools available in science, technology, engineering, and math? And, and as, as kids learn that framework and can remember like, hey, wait, this sounds like a hard problem. And I've solved a lot of other things that felt like hard problems. And I can understand some patterns and what that looks like and, and looking at the interdependencies and planning things out and optimizing the resources that I have both within myself and my network and my teammates. I think all of that stuff, I guess I'm just not too concerned about it. The broader thing I would be concerned about is the equity and agency. So will there be people that are solving that problem? Yeah. Will they reflect the communities that the solutions for that problem um, have high implications for? Maybe not. And so increasingly we can get hyper concentrations of power centers that come from particular identities and communities that might not reflect the values of all the communities that are going to have an explicated reality based upon the decisions of that like smaller room. And so I, I think it's very important in Hawaii that we we prepare our kids to be in those rooms, mm -hmm. to to demand that their their voice is heard on those things. Um, because I think I think our kids are pretty great at solving those problems. And there's something about the culture and community in Hawaii. Uh, I think it's the fact that it's, you know, we're the most collectivist state in terms of the way that we look at solutions, that uh, the world will benefit from students from Hawaii being in those rooms. And absolutely just, they need to have the technical backing to understand the problem, right? All problems have a technical nature to them. And if, if you don't dig into that, then you could be misled in your conclusions. And they also all have a real social knack. And this is why always looking at the social externalities and the technical intricacies of some of these challenges are gonna be important. And how do kids get ready for that? Well, we practice by giving them authentic problems all throughout school, all right. throughout their learning and their matriculation and their, their time as emerging leaders in communities. Along the same lines, question number four, same East meets West conference, different subject. So one of the panels dove into intrapreneurship. 
or innovation mm-hmm. from the inside up. Um, and it's, it's happening in our armed forces. That was one of the panelists. It's happening at Kamehameha Schools, big organization, four campuses, 7,000 kids. Um, it's happening at businesses, large and small, all over the world. So my question, Justin, is what do we need to do to help our K-12 students become entrepreneurs or engines of innovation within the firms and businesses and organizations they'll eventually work at? Um, Well, I would first um, posit that maybe many of them won't work at those large firms and organizations, that the most automation and 21st century proof profession is being a CEO. And that this idea of micro entrepreneurship, which resonates so well with kids naturally, I got all these kids that have amazing side hustles, right? They're making shirts and musubis and and building out those skills and having to understand that you're putting your time and your resources on the line to to get an unknown return. And like they're understanding market forces, obviously, without um, always having the economic class where you're supposed to learn that. I think it's already going on. Mm -hmm. I think this is a classic thing where we need to get out of the way. Right. We need to not add a business class for kids so that we can give them names for the things that they see and know already. We need to give them the opportunity to have structured reflection and showcasing and share outs of the types of problems that they've solved in their their kind of small time or individual entrepreneurship and and then start talking and having meaningful reflection and feedback on, hey, there happens to be some models that might help you accelerate awesome. You have learned some things in your process. Here's a case study. Hey, there's these things called case studies and maybe they're useful to you. So I guess um, for me, it's something that if this, I'm thinking about how the school is a CTE coordinator, how a school would systematize that? And I think the answer is poorly. And so like, this is a place where the way we should systematize that is move ourselves out of the way and then kind of create a space and an opportunity for kids to share that. I mean. Our kids are remarkably entrepreneurial, right, in, in everything they're doing. I, and I would say that that would be most highly correlated with those that are most disinterested in things like those boring math and English classes, which we might say that their grades are a reflection of their skill set. And that's a poor metric because <laughs> there are lots of kids, you know, in, in rural Kona who are working on their, their family's ranch or, or doing all types of interesting things where they're solving some very big problems maybe in that space. And we should celebrate them. Like if we want to arbitrarily give them some credit for it, I'm sure that's how the system would think that that needs to work. But maybe we're not the right place to do that in terms of building out a curriculum. Right. Right? Like we can build curriculums and the nature of doing that can have a negative outcome in that subject matter area for kids. This is an experiential learning thing that we need to probably harness higher quality reflection and mentoring tools on. And that probably comes from changing the relationship between uh, local businesses, entrepreneurs, community leaders, um, uh, government levers, and our our school system, which Mm. I think should be at the heart of all of those other things. Right. Right, I actually think schools can and should be driving local economic and policy decisions at a much higher level than they are right now. Mm. Cool. Okay, so question number five, and then we're going to take a short break. So a little bit of a preamble on this one. Um, Justin, I'm super interested in micro-credentialing. In a a recent Fast Company article, uh, I read, uh, quote, as technology continues to transform various industries, what employers are looking for from their employees will change at a faster rate. Whether it's worst case, which is jobs destroyed by robots and AI, or whether it's best case, which is jobs only changed by robots and AI, it's either reskilling or upskilling. So my question has to do with whether it's upskilling or reskilling, what do public, private, and charter schools have to do to get kids ready for what's already happening? Obviously, automation and the future of workforce is my primary like research focus and what I, I talk about all the time. So this is a particular passion question uh, for me. The first thing I want to say is it's not new. We started at the Industrial Revolution augmenting the way in which human labor interacted in systems of profit. From the 1940s until the 2000s, we automated all back-end manufacturing. People didn't see it. And that creative disruption was absorbed well by the economy and tons of wealth and opportunity and quality of life improved. 
Right? Like, let's understand that the incentives for technology are making things faster, cheaper, and more environmentally friendly, right, and safer. And so there's, a, I think, a really big reaction to it now because people are seeing the front-end delivery being automated, and so that kind of brings up the concern. Yeah. When we look at that, we should say this. The standards by which, in 1873, we, we set up our industrialized education system were built on a work environment that doesn't exist now and certainly won't exist for kids. By them learning those kind of low-skill, rote tasks, they are lowering their cognitive ability to do the types of skills they're going to need in the 21st century because automation is certainly given a natural market. Now, just quickly, we could have an artificial market. We could have government policy that protects jobs unnaturally. We actually have it right now. Yeah. And so instead of seeping in and gradually dealing with this workforce transition, we're setting ourselves up for like, hey, let's build this wall to hold back this tide. And so unfortunately, I don't think we can do that for another generation. So we are probably going to have a pretty big tidal wave of sweeping out about 25% of current jobs. That's happened before. We've had these types of sweep throughs. We've lost this type of capital in the workforce through things like disease and pandemics, and we've recovered. So the first thing is we should pull back on our alarmists because we've been there before and we've handled it. In terms of reskilling, I think if you understand how teams work, that's a really valuable 15th century and 21st century skill. Right. Right. And and we know this. So let's let's identify the things that aren't median specific, that aren't task specific. And there are a lot of things that I think a lot of educators did before there was a standard or a buzzword or a book or a weird Twitter chat about it. Right. And there are things about how you understand empathy, how you develop your identity, how you seek out um, problems and spaces in your community where you can make things better for people you care about, how you um, optimize resource delivery, how you solve problems like the humans have faced adaptive and wicked problems forever. And we've done a pretty good, like we've made it to now and we're going to make it into the 21st century exceptionally well. In the 21st century, we're going to pull more people out of poverty every single decade than we did in the 20th century. That's cool. That's going to open up a set of minds that are going to solve problems that haven't had the necessary like agency and resources to share their solutions globally. Like I think we have to all take a step back from how alarmist it is. Now, that being said, demonstratively, most of the things kids are learning in high school shouldn't be taught anymore. Like both things can be true, right? We're setting ourselves up for like a massive disruption that somehow we will take on, like we've take on, taken on other massive disruptions. And is micro-credentialing maybe a part of it? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because the credential only has the value that the market ends up giving it. And right now it has value because it's unique. As it scales, I don't think the credential is going to matter, right? Like, so, so let's give 100% of employees their OSHA 30 credential, Okay, well, maybe we're a little safer, but like that credential doesn't differentiate you. I think what what is is mm -hmm. powerful micro micro credentialing is how we're going to do continuous structured adult learning, mm -hmm. and I think there's a really interesting solution space which is we're going to stop calling it adult learning, and we're going to bring in a lot more uh, intergenerational um, skills and capacity building. And I could totally see like, hey, there's this thing called JavaScript and we're going to go through some exercises and it's open and places like public libraries could be and schools can be the hub of rethinking how we're doing skills acquisition. Part two, most people don't need that because when I want to learn something, I look at a YouTube video. So we've opened up that space. And I guess the way I think about it is, um, oh my, the British evolutionary biologist. Hmm. This guy. Um, <laughs> Are we thinking but, of Darwin? No. No, no, no. Um, basically says that, like, like, maybe there's a theory that's probably backed up that nature doesn't produce a problem, that nature doesn't have some type of inoculation or a balance for. Like, there's, like it exists, but, like, that man could. Yeah. And I'd say I feel the same way about technology. Mm -hmm. Like, technology is presenting all these different ways that we need to learn and think and interact with the world. And it's also presenting great solutions. Like, the Internet has creative disruption and also has creation within it. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be maybe pulling back some of those institutional infrastructures that 
the thing they do best is perpetuate their own existence. Maybe there's going to be a challenge to their survival, and maybe that's good. Like, I totally see a world 30 years from now where most people don't go to a K-12 school. Like, I think that's probably the most likely outcome. So the kids that are currently in kindergarten, like, they're going to have their kids in that world. What are we doing to prep them and being like, hey, this was an efficient way to deliver information, uh, values, and community standards for two centuries, and it's not anymore. And how are you going to build the models that are? Right. And so, like, I see no preservation to the idea of school. Mm. Like, that doesn't excite me at all. How do we preserve school? How do we preserve the DOE? Mm. There should be amazing preservation for how do we prep kids and communities to solve problems that are unknown to them. Yeah. I just don't think school is going to be the way we do it. Cool. Hey, everybody, stay with us. After a short break, we will come back with more questions for Justin Brown. What can your school do with $25,000? Hawaii Public School teachers apply for the Education Innovation Grant from Farmers Insurance Hawaii and the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation to make your big idea a reality. The Education Innovation Grant fosters unique, innovative learning experiences benefiting teachers, students, and the greater community. The deadline to apply is May 30th. One Oahu winner and one neighbor island winner will be announced in October. To apply, go to FarmersHawaii.com slash Education Innovation. Toy and Amber from Entre Ed Talk. We are so excited to uplift this cool new podcast coming to you from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. What school could be in Hawaii? As always, we're super excited to support innovation and education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of these incredible educators on our own podcast, Entre Ed Talk. If you're looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators from across the world, join us as we share their journey and insight. Be sure to check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at Entre Ed Talk and like, subscribe, and drop us a review today. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale, and you're listening to What School Could Be in Hawaii, a podcast partnership between MarketScale and Josh Raccoon, exploring the latest insights and thought leadership in the world of EdTech. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts these days, or just head to marketscale.com, click on industries at the top of the page and scroll down to EdTech. We'll see you there. Hey everybody, we're back. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon, and we're here with Justin Brown. So Justin, question number six. So I learned from your biographic material that before you were a teacher, you worked as a jazz and classical bassist, and that you hold the concept of improvisation in very high regard, so much that you consider it a crucial skill for 21st century success. Um, so my question is, do, do you mean the success of your students or your fellow faculty members or schools in general or all Three. And then there's some related or a, a related question. For 130 years, education has been about scripts. So what is the role of improv in education? Um, improvisation is the single most essential skill for the 21st century. That's just uh, absolutely my answer on that. Um, I would say that empathy is probably the most essential mindset, and they work really well together in super dynamic people and systems. So what I mean by improvisation is, uh, you know, I came out of the jazz world, um, originally, originally changed, uh, trained in classical music, but then the, the work I got to do and where I got to travel and that type of stuff was all in jazz. And when you're doing that, there's, you're not just making stuff up. You have a really solid understanding of the technical underpinnings, the history, what you're quoting, how you're interacting, uh, the system, the flow, the chords, all of that of the song, and then in real time with others you're creating. And, you know, when I'd go out on gigs, you know, sometimes I'd be with somebody, and we, you know, we wouldn't talk for the whole first set. You know, we get there, we unpack, we play, and, and just knew how his week went by the way we created things. And it's not creating in the same way, you know, when you know, I was playing classical music in the symphony, it's like, okay, 
this is here and it's hard and everybody play together and learn this and do as much as you can on this. But to create in real time and understand the form and structure, the technical underpinnings both of, of your piece and what you're trying to create, what the audience needs, right? And to be able to, to pull that out and do something that is both original and structured is so important in every field. Um, I have the most experience personally in what that looked like in music, but I think a lot of people, um, one, of, one of the best teachers we have at our school is our um, auto teacher, and he fixes everything on the island. He's an improviser, right? He's, he, he's a very gifted mechanic, he's a very gifted um, teacher, but when there's like a, well, this is a 72 Ford, and we don't have this part, and I need to do this, and I, I know some, it, it's, my struggle with the improvisation question is some people think, so you just make it all up. And, and if you have the ear in music to know like, yeah, there is that 10th grade trombonist who just thinks, I just make it all up, or I play the melody and do a little switch right here, that's very different than understanding the, the history and the context of your art and who's come before you and how you're quoting them and how you're responding to like, oh, like you're doing like that Buddy Rich thing, so I'm gonna come back and like Paul Chambers would have been the most appropriate thing to quote right there. And, and how are we putting together all of these different people and bringing it out to create an experience that is collective and in real time and is not designed to be made a thousand times, mm. right? In this industrial complex of thinking and consumption Standardization and, and replication is very optimized in our thinking. But when you're improvising, when we're creating, when we're having a conversation as opposed to having a, a script in front of us, right. there's something powerful about that. So I think in both in terms of what people do when they're doing hacking, when they're doing engineering, when they're doing musical improv, when they're doing theatrical improv, when they're doing stand-up comedy, this idea that you understand form and structure and the history and the skills of your art form, of your median, and then in that moment with whomever is there, you create. And I know when I was soloing that what I had for lunch changed what I was doing and what the lights were and who was in the audience. And that's where I think for me, I first started seeing shining eyes in my life mm. and what it means to create something for people together. That's what you need. And if you have improvisation, boy, well, just give me the technical vocabulary of whatever problem set I'm in right now. I can learn that and then I can improvise on it. So I remember, Justin, there was this moment four years ago where uh, a crazy person, Ian Kitajima at Oceanet, brought together, along with a number of other partners, about a thousand students. Um, this was during the World Conservation Congress, and they did a design thinking boot camp for a thousand kids. And these thousand kids in the convention center were all seated around round tables, and right in the middle of it, you and your kids stood the table up and put it on its side. And I took a bunch of photos of that because that felt to me like an improv moment. You knew that you needed to stand it up and that you used that table as sort of a massive whiteboard, and then you guys went after the problem. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy to see that happen and you did that really quickly with your kids. It was in the moment decision. So what was that all about? Um, that's where the table needed to be for that problem. Right? If you're doing a disruptive design challenge where you're trying to bring uh, not the hierarchy of the facilitator or the expertise of the loudest student forward, um, having that vertical space was really necessary. What's fascinating is the second we did it, the ideas just started flowing out. I think yeah. in that room there was about 20 different groups and most of them got to like six or seven ideas and we got like to 150, yeah. right? And every kid, and, and they weren't actually any of my students who I'd worked with. Just in that moment it kind of emerged like, you know, we did some warm-up games, right? Just like when I'm, I'm yep. about to play some music, like we, like everyone's kind of jumped in the problem, started writing things, and we kind of played some warm-up games. Then it was like, yeah, this this is a bad space. This is a standing type of activity. What's so interesting about it is the second we did it, one of the conference organizers like came over and told the kids to put the table back. Yeah, and I was like. Well, this is, and then she's like, no, I'm in charge. And this idea of like hierarchy and how things are supposed to be <laughs> is just so heretical to the type of big disruptions that we need. Yeah. But so many people have to cling, cling to that structure because that's where they feel safe. And I, I still struggle to see 
Um, my initial response to people who feel safe in those structured places is is not as mature as I want it to be. Like, how do we guide them into um, safe exploration of disruptive and unknown places? Right. Also, I, I probably said some things to her that led to her not having the greatest of afternoons. And then we found her <laughs> boss, and everything was fine, and they loved what we were doing. And, right. you know, that's that's what happened. So I, I don't know. I, that's that's kind of what I remember about that moment. And also those were those were kids that I – I didn't know, and it was great to see them. Because when you say, like, oh, do I have permission to stand up and turn my table? Well, then, oh, do I have permission to think about this problem differently? Sometimes curating spaces that are dynamic and disruptive can assist in curating ideas and projects that are dynamic and disruptive. Okay, question number seven. Um, at Kealakehe High School, you are the career and technical education, which is known as CTE, coordinator, mm-hmm. the Perkins director, the curriculum specialist, and you manage over a million dollars in assets and $300,000 in annual expenditures. Um, you support 10 full-time and three part-time teachers. You coordinate 28 college preparatory programs and six federal career pathways. You ensure safety maintenance of eight career training laboratories, including directing the Kealakehe STEM Academy. So in all honesty, Justin, (laughs) I'm not sure how to unpack this for a radio audience, but let's try. So what is the ultimate impact on kids of all of your responsibilities? Like boil it down for us or expand if you like. I think very little of my impact on kid happens in any of those roles or responsibilities. Those are systemic tasks and reports that need to happen for reasons that I don't know that I believe in. But it needs to happen for us to do the rest of our work, Mm -hmm. which is how do we put the right tools and the biggest problems in the hands of as many kids as possible. So I don't know, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I just, I was thinking through my work week, like, all of that stuff is like two hours of just, I need to sit at my computer and knock it out. What's exciting and what I think matters for kids and what we're trying to do is when we can, again, put big, hairy, sticky, unsolved problems in in their minds. And I guess I shouldn't diminish that. Yeah, we we need a certain set of resources. And, you know, we put a lot of tools in a lot of kids' hands. And, you know, we have like a Band-Aid count every year that's in single digits, you know, because um, we don't have injuries because – kids aren't afraid to use the tools. And it's like, wait, that kid's got a plasma cutter in their hand. It's like, yeah, they're not afraid of it, right? The worst thing you can do is say like, tools are scary and have all these safety rules. So I think, yes, a lot of that is super important um, because I don't think we could do the stuff we we did without those things being in place a lot of times. But uh, none of that is inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. Um, most of it I wish didn't have to happen. Most of it I think doesn't need to happen. I think there's a lot of jobs and roles that can and should be completely eliminated and managing all of those tasks are probably some of them. Mm. What's cool is by doing all that stuff, I can have the resources to take 49 people to California for two weeks and we're going to look at 10 colleges and 22 industries and the kids are going to have what I know is going to be a life-changing experience. Mm -hmm. And I guess in the absence of some of those tasks happening in our current paradigm, we couldn't do that. So I don't know. I, I don't that doesn't excite me. It just sounds like a whole bunch of to-do lists yeah. and it, it, a lot of administrative oversight and shadows that exist in buildings that I don't go to within the DOE. Mm-hmm. What's exciting is that I guess if we do that enough where people stop hassling us, then we can get down to working with kids. So perfect segue to question number eight. So buried in your resume, Justin, I discovered you are since 2014, the lunar dust removal team called Moonriders, site coordinator with NASA, Google, uh, Pisces, and Ilani School. And I was, I was just, I was reading this, and I was like, excuse me, like moon dust? What? Like, what is the role of your students in all this? This sounds truly crazy, insane. Talk to me. 
Yeah, so the Moonriders project was pretty amazing. It was an interesting collaboration between the state of Hawaii, Pisces, which is a state agency, and NASA looking at uh, Google set up the Lunar X Prize, which said we need to get back to the moon, which we absolutely do, um, solving the extreme problems of space travel for humans creates tons of economic and humanitarian opportunities um, here. Our lives are tremendously improved by solving those problems. It's one of the best investments we can do in bringing people out of, out of poverty and improving the quality of life. With all that said, Google said, hey, here's $20 million to the whole global world. Let's get back to the moon. And um, everybody failed. And we don't talk about that enough. You know, they said you got to do it by 2015, 2016, 2017. No one's gone back um, there. So this is non-governmental groups. Um, but in the two years before people thought companies might be able to get up and launch, um, they reached out and Google said, you know, part of our payload is going to be up to us because we're giving you this money. Are there some proposals? And we were part of that proposal and we worked on it really hard for three years. And our system, it was really cool because um, all of the kids that worked on that project, like, they killed it. It might have been our best project in terms of, mm. of technical skills acquisition. Uh, we were tasked with uh, moon dust is a little bit crazy because it will come to electric fields. It can move from over a mile away. So we have a, a billionth of the atmosphere and a sixth of the gravity on moon. That dust is shards because of the way that the dust forms on the moon. It's like little microscopic razors that are then attracted to anything which has a, a circuit or sends off an electrical signal. It shut down several um, missions. So imagine if you were just walking and dust was being attracted to you. And if you brush that dust off, you dug it into the fabric and it created all these little holes and damaged your equipment, um, took down your, your solar power, those types of things. There's a great team at NASA that did some amazing research using diaphoresis to cycle out the power and basically similar to a magnet, but not using the same forces, repel that. And our students um, created the dust shield attachment working with two different aerospace companies um, where it would go. We did testing up at Mauna Kea. We did testing at Kennedy Space Center, uh, NASA Ames in California. We built a model lander and nothing flew to the moon. So like we were never building a rocket and a lander. We had 1.1 kilograms to integrate a system. Um, we did cool avionics avionics and telemetry, we got to work with the Ilani School, and nothing flew to the moon. Um, and the project's been pending, and I think mm. the state legislator gave $10,000. It's probably someone should audit it sitting somewhere that's supposed to send us over and we like <laughs> put it on there. Um, but it was, a, it was a really cool project, yeah. um, and nothing's happened in the last three years with it because no one's gone to the moon, right? Like we weren't trying to just go to the moon, although we do have a really cool rocketry program that we've built out with NASA over the last couple of years. <laughs> uh, that wasn't the focus of that project. Right. But amazing problem solved, and I think it was actually through that project that I challenged my own assumptions with how big of problems kids could solve. Mm. It was really amazing when they were working with university teams and venture capital wow. companies that had raised millions of dollars and they were just out technically specking them and telling a better human story. What was great about it was, you know, we'd go into these rooms with venture capital and, and NASA directors and stuff like that and we'd start with the human story of exploration, how that connected to the Polynesian voyagers and what we needed to do here and oh, by the way, here's all of our technical specs and oh, by the way, this kid's, you know, going to ISIF with the science research that went on it, and this kid went off to, to Yale with his work and this kid went off to Stanford and, you know, it was, it it was really amazing how it empowered kids, and um, it was a really good check on the the vision that, that that I could see of the potential of the kids. Cool. Okay, question number nine. Um, I just finished reading Paul Tuff's book uh, subtitled How College Makes or Breaks Us. Um, Tuff explains how college admissions have become like a collective American madness mm -hmm. and insanity. Um, unlike when I applied to the University of Oregon in 1979, which was 35 bucks and an essay, and that was it, no letters of rec or anything like that. Um, today, college admissions is contributing to extraordinary levels of anxiety in young people and their parents. So my question is, what's your take on this? And, and where do the solutions come from to this madness? And what do you tell your students who aspire to a college degree but are potentially walking into that group of 40 million young Americans who are holding $1.3 trillion in college debt. Yeah, so there's not a great case for kids in Hawaii going into debt to get their education. The economics don't work, um, particularly in this economy. And in our localized economy, which doesn't have as much um, transition of workforce, just the way we kind of look at it, um, the economics of it don't work. I just gave a, 
a very uh, a series of, of lectures to my seniors who are applying, and it was I was basically like, by the end of this, I want you to seriously doubt of going to college. Every single one of you, like kid that just got into MIT, like every single one of you, should you go to college? Um, and I think the the broader solution is we need better non-college options after high school for kids. We need things like the Peace Corps does for college graduates, like a park core, where kids can go around the nation and learn the needs of communities and build better public parks. Like we need some, some ways in which you can build structured skills that aren't going to college. And in the absence of that, college becomes this default. Mm. The college equation was financially, from an incentives perspective, mismatched for a long time. At your investment level, you earned a lot more money. And in the 90s, colleges were like, hey, we should just raise the tuition to better match that incentive set. I think that matches today's workforce much more than it's going to match the workforce our kids are going into. Google doesn't look at college transcripts anymore. Lots of companies are moving to this. There's a better skills-based thing. That being said, there's amazing things that happen on a college campus in terms of self-discovery and in structured learning experiences, but they're not the things that are go to class, right? Go to class and like take your 40 classes, do these assignments and be done with it in terms of understanding better your identity and the history of the, the people you come from and the person you want to be. Colleges might be uniquely equipped at doing that. They might be great at doing seminars. They understand that the 700 person lecture doesn't matter. And it never did, right? But it was a proxy for all of the other things. Oh, I had this conversation. I bit this grill, grit and resilience. And most importantly, I got a network of people who will invest in me later. Mm. The problem with that is so often now people just buy that network by paying these really high tuition prices. I think we should collectively reject that. Mm. I love community college cohort and technical programs. Um, working through college is possible still in that type of mindset. But we just need to have better options. We need to say, hey, look, there's a $20,000 government-funded fellowship for everyone that wants to make a documentary about original source materials and interviews in their community, because every community has stories and has interesting material that is dying away right now that we would have national value in keeping that heritage. And 18-year-olds might be exceptionally well-equipped to do that type of stuff. We need to open up different spaces. Unfortunately, who are the people that are getting those spaces? like talk about an arbiter of inequity, right? It's people with the absolute most privilege who can afford to those, those types of things. So I think, you know, we need to look at our social contract and invest heavily in non-college solutions. Flip side, most of my students are gonna leave with associates level credits from our program. We're pushing the heck out of it because right now there's some economic benefit to it. Yeah. I think that should happen as a byproduct of meaningful learning experiences and too often it becomes a proxy for meaningful learning experiences, but there's ways to do both. Um, and every single kid that talks to me about going to college, I think is less interested in going to college after we have that conversation. Every kid that tells me they're very disinterested in going to college, like hopefully they're more interested, like that's, that's where you need to have that conflicted reality. Yeah. And as communities, we just need to understand that like, it's a pay to play model so often. Yeah. It doesn't correlate with career success correlates with the economic market you have access to and what are the equity questions about that and who are we perpetuating and I would I would definitely say in the terms of, of social science in the absence of being able to pass on titles we may have emerged a different system of perpetuating generational wealth that has been toxic to our collective advancement and and colleges have probably been a huge lever in allowing that to happen. Mm. And they've also done unbelievable research, which has allowed me to probably live 40 years longer with the people I love and be in tremendously less physical pain right. and all types of good things. Yeah. So like, you know, it, it's a complicated moral story there, but we should not make that complicated moral story decision individually or structurally for kids. We should introduce to them that these are places where things like racism and the patriarchy and colonialism were protected and defended and, and also places where we broke some of those systems down. Right. And if, if you can learn in one of those places well and someone or somehow is, is able to fund that, then maybe that's an interesting opportunity now show me the three other opportunities that are also interesting mm. and make a decision. 
And also, why are we investing in 18-year-olds to have this, like, super subsidized social experience where we're paying for their food and their housing? Like, I think we should probably be doing that for 22-year-olds. This is based largely on when we thought childbearing should happen. And now that's happening at a much later point. So we should probably mm. look to age our college population, differentiate it, and have, um, again, the institution of school, I think, has had a 200-year run and doesn't need to exist in 50 years. The institution of college has a lot more inertia but might be under similar constraints. And tons of colleges are doing that, right? right? Harvard MBA programs are doing most of their regular content delivery just online, right? right? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you, you see that that's how it's working. There's, there's different models that, that can and, and should happen. All right, we've come down to the last question here, Justin. Yep. Question number 10. So this is the what school could be question. So you're on one, uh, you are one of the keynote speakers at the uh, upcoming June 2020 Kamehameha Schools Ed Tech Conference, hypothetically, which is titled, <laughs> no, sorry, I didn't want to spring that on you, um, titled Deviate and Amplify. That's the theme of the mm -hmm. conference. So let's say there's 300 public, private, and, and charter school uh, educators and leaders in the audience and speaking from your perch at the high school level what message do you want to convey to them what do you need them to do to prepare kids to enter your domains at Kealakehe High School and what makes kids most likely to succeed and what could school be so I, I'd start with a couple of my initial assumptions which are innovation and empathy are crucial and different types of experiences are going to more systematically allow more kids to get that. And then I'd say that if we wanted to have a heuristic and be simple about, sim uh, simplify it a little bit, that the, the role of the educator and the systems that support the educator are to curate phenomena that allow students to design artifacts that testify to understanding. Yeah. And everything in terms of curriculum and instruction, I think, falls well within that. Right. And in certain understandings, that artifact might be, like there's probably a place in a limited contained role for multiple choice questions or short response or structured questions that can monitor maybe problem or parrot-based learning. And as we move up just to the next level of project-based learning, like it's, it's what, what can we do to curate those phenomena? We need to stop thinking we need to create them. They're already there. They're existing for their for the students in their homes. And as we do that, how are they creating those artifacts of testified understanding? And that can be products that they're making, that can be videos, that can be all types of things. It's gonna have a lot more artistic looking things. Then we're gonna have to ask, well, we're not a stage on the stage. We might be an architect of accessible spaces. We're definitely going to have to be like phenomenal feedback artists. What does that look like in terms of the facilitator that, that's working with these students? And maybe that facilitator is much less often a trained teacher, but it's other caring adults that are engaging and, and those systems can exist and they will exist. They just might exist as a survival threat to the current system if it chooses not to adapt. Got it, wow. Justin Brown from Kealakehe High School. Thank you for flying over to Oahu today for this this particular episode and thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, it was fun. Welcome back to season one, semester two of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. We are so excited to share all of the new educators for this month. Coming up next week is Miki KKC, the Milken Award winner from Eva Mackay Middle. Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook and at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram and Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be, hashtag deeper learning, hashtag edchat, and hashtag education. Our next interviews will be recorded on Saturday, March 28th. You can join us in the studio through the magic of Facebook Live. Find us at the Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. 
If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapoon. Our podcast consultant and sound engineer is Ryan Ozawa. The editor for this episode was Marlo Nutrera, under the guidance of Matthew Williams. Learn more at hawkmediaproductions.com. And special thanks to Ted Dintersmith, author and education change agent. Now, off to your next epic adventure. Class dismissed.